aloha. We're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. Um, I've never preached a Christmas sermon, so I'm excited. I've preached on and around Christmas, but I've never talked about the Christmas story, and I want to talk a little bit about it tonight. But honestly, um, let me just back up for a second, thinking about the idea of, I I spent a lot of my life on stage holding a guitar, uh, helping lead worship teams, and when we would come off the stage, one of the first questions that we would ask is, how was it? How was worship? And um, that used to really bother me because I love everybody who's seated out there, but this is not for you, it's for him. And while, of course, we have a a value for excellence, I don't care if you were stirred during worship, I care if he was stirred during worship. And I've been thinking about that lately, about how the strength of my walk with the Lord, it's, it's directly related to my levels of affection for him. Do you understand, my walk with the Lord is directly related to my level of affection that I have for him. Uh, Paul tells us that you're restrained by your own affections. And that's sobering. That's, that's hard to hear sometimes. And one of the things that I've just been processing over and over is that I've become obsessed with him. I can't stop thinking about him. Do you know what the word obsessed means? It means that you lose control of your feelings about the object of obsession. And man, it feels good to be so obsessed. It's never felt so costly to come so close to him, and yet I've never wanted it more. It's It's been absolutely real how costly it is, but he's beautifully consuming. And when we invite that beautiful consumption, he's a raging fire, scripture tells us, He'll actually take the things that we give to him that interfere with our obsession with him. And so again, we've prayed this prayer for a year, maybe a year and a half. It's, it's Lord, take whatever you want, shake whatever you want, purify whatever you want. And it's, it's not a catchy slogan. It's not a fun motto. It's, it's a cry to be refined. It's a cry that says, remove the, the obstacles that are in the way between us, Lord, and the crazy part is that he usually won't force it. Now, he'll, he'll have moments where he takes and shakes and purifies without your permission, but usually he, he waits because he wants to be wanted and he desires to be desired. And he'll wait till we arrive at that point to, to start taking and shaking and purifying. And one of the greatest joys of my life right now is to be emptied and release everything I have to him. And that's a big word, everything. Uh, And yet, he says, if you'll give me everything, I'll take it. What I found, and I bet what a lot of people in this room have found, is that there's no no distraction when complete surrender happens towards him. When we're completely surrendered towards him, the distraction doesn't seem to matter anymore. It's less distracting, isn't it? His beauty... It's beautifully costly for him to refine. It's beautifully costly for us to lay lesser things down. But you know that everything is lesser in compared to him, isn't it? 
There isn't anything that has worth when you look at his worth and then you look at the worth of something else. There's nothing. There is a cost of laying down the lesser to pick up the greater. And it usually hurts. It usually has a bit of sting to it. And it usually goes against our flesh. And it will usually fight against our momentary desires. But the reward of himself absolutely overshadows the losses of lesser things. Yes, it's costly, and yes, it's refining, but I found that it's worth the cost of losing those distractions, as painful as they can be in that moment. And again, his, his glory hasn't ever felt more real, more tangible, or more costly, and yet I, I can't get enough. I want more. And I don't know, like, let's join in this together. If you feel like you want a greater measure of his glory, raise your hand. Make a demonstration to him tonight. Father, you see this. You see this hunger. You see these hearts that are saying anything for more of you, God. So take whatever you want. Shake whatever you want. Purify whatever you want. Not to hurt us, but to help remove the obstacles. To take things out of the way that are actually barriers towards us and you. God, no more barriers. I just see this picture of an Olympic hurdler and they're running and they jump over the hurdles, but that's one guy, he just runs through them and they shatter. Lord, let that be us, that no barriers, nothing's stopping us from reaching you. You pass over a million satisfied people to find one hungry person. Well, here's a room full of hungry people. Satisfy us, God. Satisfy us with the greater things. Bless you in Jesus' name. Okay. Let's talk about Christmas, shall we? I want to read um, two portions of scripture tonight. Both are considered part of the Christmas story. The first one is out of Luke chapter 2. You're very familiar with this passage. It's a little bit lengthy, but um, it comes once a year, so let's go for it. Luke chapter 2, it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And I just want to pause. What they said there literally is they're bringing gospel. They're bringing the gospel. They're they're gospeling great joy to all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, The shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just 
as had been told them. Many scholars believe that the, the fields that these shepherds were in were the fields that the sacrificial flocks of sheep were kept that were used for slaughter in worship for the temple. And a lot of people think the specific fields that these shepherds were in, in, in Luke chapter 2, were the fields of Migdal Eder, which is prophesied in the book of Micah. And there is a watchtower in these fields. And when a, when a sheep was about to give birth to this Passover lamb in these fields, a shepherd would bring uh, the mother sheep into the lower level of this watchtower so it would give birth to this Passover lamb. And prior to the lamb being born, the shepherd would actually prepare a manger by filling it with soft hay. And it was a specific type of hay that's used for bread, bread of life. So when this sacrificial lamb was born on this first floor of the watchtower, the shepherds, these ancient shepherds, would actually wrap this, this lamb in swaddling cloth and lay it in this manger. Swaddling cloths were used specifically by shepherd priests who were watching over the Passover lamb's flock, not any shepherd, but priestly shepherds. They would swaddle the, the sacrificial Passover lamb as soon as it was born and put it in this manger filled with soft hay. And the soft hay and the cloth wrapped around this Passover lamb prevented the lamb from hurting itself. The reason they did this to the Passover lamb and none of the other lambs was because the law of Moses said that the Passover lamb had to be free from blemish. It could not have any bruising. It could not have any broken bones. So in, in this passage out of Luke chapter 2, the shepherds, after being visited by these angels in this field, it says they immediately go and find the Christ child laying in the place where the sacrificial lamb should be. Right? They find the Christ in a manger wrapped in what? Swaddling cloth in the place the Passover lamb should be. And this had great significance to the shepherds. They understood, you know, how, let me ask you this, how did the shepherds know where to find Jesus? Does anybody know? It wasn't a star. That was the wise men. We don't have any understanding how the shepherds went and found baby Jesus. Read the passage again sometime. I was like saying, it's a star. No, it's not a star. This was you know, in Bethlehem where there was a census being taken, where there were no empty rooms. All the people had come to Bethlehem because of the census. So Mary and Joseph were out in this manger scene. And the shepherds understood when they see this newborn baby in a manger, probably on this soft hay, wrapped in swaddling cloths, they understood that a perfect sacrifice had just been sent from above. They understood the symbolism. They understood the imagery because that was part of their daily lives. We see this same metaphor carried out later in Jesus' life when he hangs on the cross. Um, when God had given Moses and Aaron rules for the Passover back in Exodus, he prohibited any breaking of the bones in the lamb, that Passover lamb. It had to be perfect, without blemish, without defect, and without broken bones. And so when Jesus, the true Passover lamb, 
was hanging on the cross, it says that Jesus was in the middle between these two thieves and they were still living. And because it was the day of uh, preparation, the Jews wanted to speed up the death process of these three people hanging on the cross so that they wouldn't be hanging on the cross on the Sabbath day. So these Roman centurions come, they break the legs of the two thieves, which that's a gruesome process. Uh, it's just unreal to us to think about living in the times we do, but they would go around, they would break the two thieves' legs, and when they got to Jesus, they were about to break his legs, but they saw that he was dead, so they decided they didn't need to break his legs. John 19 tells us that all of these things came to pass to fulfill uh, the psalm that says he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And so we see this beautiful imagery of, of the baby in a manger with these shepherds who understand the symbolism. Even later to Jesus hanging on the cross, we see every detail of Jesus' life being fulfilled or fulfilling the prophecies that were given about him, this, this perfect sacrificial Passover lamb. In Matthew chapter 2, we see another very famous story, uh, Christmas story. It's, it's about the wise men, the magi. And I'm, I'm just going to start reading this and we'll kind of take it piece by piece. But in Matthew 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Um, just leave that up there for a little while. These magi were very distinguished foreigners. Most likely, they were royalty. They were probably kings coming from the east, it says. And I want to take a little rabbit trail here. And I know I've talked about this. It's been a few years. But I, I want to remind us of something biblically that's so beautiful and points to Jesus so clearly. Um, biblically, since the Garden of Eden, going east is bad and going west is good. This began in the Garden of Eden, which we've talked in recent weeks how the garden is actually this foreshadowing of Christ. It's the garden itself is a picture of Jesus. And when Adam and Eve sinned, God sends them out of the garden and he seals the garden with an angel who has a flaming sword to prevent their coming back into the garden and eating from the tree of life. And it says that God sends Adam and Eve out to the east. From this moment on, a, precedent, a precedence is set in scripture where moving east is always bad and moving west is always good. Time after time, when mankind decided to go east, bad stuff happened. And time after time, when mankind went west, good things happened. And the reason is because of that Genesis account where moving westward was symbolic of moving back toward the garden. West always had positive connotations after that. Moving back toward the garden, which is a picture of Christ. Moving east suddenly became representative of moving away from this garden of delight, of moving away from paradise, of moving away from God's will and plan and his order and his design. So for example, when God sent Cain out of the Garden of Eden, guess which direction Cain went? He went east and it didn't end up well. It was a bad thing that he had to go east. When Abraham and Lot, later in Genesis, when they come to this land and they split up, Abraham went west and prospered and had great things happen. Lot 
goes east to Sodom, and very bad things happened. In the Exodus account, uh, when Israel is being led out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of captivity, we all know the story where Pharaoh's pursuing them. He, he basically runs them to the Red Sea. There's no way out. They can't cross it. And Moses lifts his staff and stretches his hands over the sea. And it says, a strong east wind blew all through the night. An east wind, what direction does an east wind actually blow? It blows west. It's from the east to the west. And so this, this east wind that blows west, it comes and it miraculously splits the sea in half. And it walls up on either side. And all of Israel walks on dry ground through this, this former sea. So the wind comes from the east, blows west, back to the garden, back to Jesus. And interestingly, when Israel left Egypt, you know, they did one of these patterns out there in the wilderness. They were everywhere. And instead of heading directly to the Red Sea, the Lord actually took them around to the other side of the Red Sea. So they, they went around Moab and they crossed, at one point, they crossed the Jordan. And instead of crossing the way they should have gone, the Lord took them around so that they went from east to west. So it's very significant that God sends this east wind in the Red Sea that divides the waters and makes it become dry ground. Uh, it wasn't coincidence that it came from that direction. And we know that the Red Sea is uh, it's symbolic of our salvation. It's, it's about um, what Jesus did for us on the cross. And moving westward back toward the garden is just another type of the Christ in this situation. So again, God sends this east wind with the parting of the Red Sea. Which part of the Godhead is represented by wind? The Holy Spirit. Who does the Holy Spirit always point to? Jesus. So this blowing wind that blows west back towards Jesus, back to the true tree of life, back to the true sacrificial lamb. When Israel went into exile in Babylon, they went east. Bad things. When Israel came out of Babylon, or sorry, when it came out of exile and returned to rebuild Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah, they moved west, back towards the garden, back towards the Christ. You know, the Psalms say he removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. I think it's actually significant. The, the um, scholars believe that the wording is actually significant, that it's not that he removes our sins as far as the west is from the east. It ends going west back towards him. And then we get to these wise men, these, these magi who come to see baby Jesus. They came from the east, which means they were traveling in which direction? They're headed west towards the Christ. How did the wise men find Jesus? The star. These wise men represented mankind seeing the light of the world, this star that went to find the actual light of the world. And it followed them back to, probably, he was probably two years old at the time, but back to the sacrificial lamb, back to the garden, back to the true tree of life. There's so many more instances where east and west um, align with this analogy. But you guys are getting lost. You pay attention, pay closer attention. Robin, let's go. Anyway, the magi come from the east. So these very wise literally brilliant scholar king priests 
come to find Jesus. And these guys, um, there was three main areas that people believe they studied. Uh, astronomy, astrology, and natural science. So they come from the east. They tr most people believe they traveled for about two years with the sole purpose of worship. Imagine following a star for two years, but don't forget, it's a round trip. So really, you're giving up four years of your life. Imagine following a star for two years to come and find someone that you know nothing about. To come and find a baby you know nothing about. This wasn't the first time scripturally where people traveled great distances to worship a king, but this is probably the first time scripturally where the one being worshipped couldn't do anything in return for those coming to worship him. Think about the queen of Sheba. When, when she went to see Solomon, she knew of his unparalleled wisdom, his unparalleled uh, riches and insight into deep things. There was a reason she went to see him. She went to learn and receive from him. And that was great. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And even in la later in Jesus' life, people went to listen to him teach. They went to get their bodies healed. They went to have deliverance of these terrible things, this torment that was happening in their lives. But for the Magi, there was only one reason why they were traveling to see this child king. They came to worship him for who he was, not what he did. Not what he could do for them. They came to worship him because he was born king. He wasn't crowned or anointed, at least by human beings. Let's carry on with um, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, it was his star, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with them. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. He said to them, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell on the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. You can leave that up there just for a minute. So in verse 10 of this passage, it says that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When they saw the star, so that means they had not found the child yet. 
just seeing the star caused them to rejoice greatly with exceeding joy. All they saw was the sign that was pointing to him, and that was enough to get them excited, very excited. The verbiage, what that word actually means, it means excessively, violently joyful. Violently. What does that look like? How joyful do you have to be to cause the gates of hell to shake because of your joy? I love this. Excessive joy is a stumbling block to many people, isn't it? Many people think that we should limit the amount of joy that happens in an environment so that it doesn't become emotionalism or so that God doesn't become displeased if it's too much joy. Have you ever met somebody who is excessively joyful? They're kind of offensive, aren't they? (laughs) We don't know much else about the Magi, and I've seen many paintings, many depictions of them, and in every single one, they're very um, calm, reverent, royal, high-looking kings who are riding on donkeys. And even, I went to a performance last night. Even at the performance last night, there was three wise men. They were very solemn and holy-looking. I was paying attention because I knew, I, I was like, I wonder what their wise men are going to look like. They come in, they do their thing, they, you know, they frown a little bit. Now listen, the Magi may have been very solemn on some occasions, and they may have been very holy-looking on some occasions, but here they weren't. Here they weren't at all. And while they're bringing these gifts, they become excessively, violently joyful to the point of offense. Romans 14 tells us that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Did you hear the word joy in there? It's one-third of the kingdom of God. Isn't it fascinating that one-third of the kingdom of God can be a stumbling block to people? Isn't it fascinating that sometimes we will avoid one-third of the kingdom of God because it's excessive or that it might become offensive to us? During worship tonight, I was just crying out to the Lord, I will never be offended at joy, Lord. I keep my heart from ever turning towards offense when someone is joyful. Like, never let me turn my back because that is turning my back on one-third of his kingdom. Don't pray for more of his kingdom to come if you're wanting to limit how much joy is expressed. Because you will be limiting how much kingdom comes if you're limiting joy. So here's these these outrageously joyful magi bringing these gifts. And here's another pop quiz. How many magi were there? Yeah, you guys got smart. You stopped answering. We don't know. Every, every Christmas play, every book, it, there's usually three, right? And that's fine. We don't know how many. And the reason why people do that is because we do know that the Magi brought three types of gifts, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. If you want your mind to be blown, go look up what those three things symbolize and what they mean. So here we have these wise men who traveled for two years, and they're probably coming because they're coming for two years. They're very wealthy. 
They're very prestigious people. They're probably coming with a whole lot of servants, a whole lot of camels, a whole lot of donkeys. And because of their elevated social and political status, um, and because they're carrying this very uh, incredibly valuable items, it's very, very likely that the Magi traveled with a huge entourage to escort them for two years. Armed soldiers, armed men to protect them along this two-year journey there and back. Uh, a lot of scholars think that these Magi traveled anywhere between 500 and 1,000 miles to find this baby who they don't know anything about. And they come bearing all these gifts. I mean, it took two years. Think about this. Jesus' earthly life began with an army of soldiers coming to welcome him. Jesus' earthly life ended with an army of soldiers coming to arrest him in the Roman cohort. And the point is simply, we don't know how many wise men there, there were, but there was enough to get Herod's attention and for him to bring them all in on this personal council with him. There was a lot of people in that area at the time, but something about them, Herod thought, I need to talk to these guys, they're important. So they come bringing these three types of gifts, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh, to this, this one that they called king, right? Because it says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So they already say, are saying that this child is the king. So if magi are these high society royal priests, imagine what kind of gifts royalty would bring to royalty. They didn't travel two years to bring him a handful of coins. They didn't travel two years to bring him a small vial of incense. They came to lavish him excessively, violently. What am I coming to bring him? I'm coming to bring him something every time that we gather. He's the highest royalty there is. He's the king of kings. It's an insult. It would have been an insult to bring the king of the Jews a gold coin from a thousand miles away. They didn't do that. We don't have the written proof, at least not scripturally, but I'm, I'm just telling you right now, they brought more than a few gold coins. When the woman came and broke the alabaster jar and poured that perfume over Jesus, everyone, including Jesus' disciples, said that's wasteful. They said that's excessive. Stop doing that. The disciples were offended at her excessive expression of worship. But here's the thing. None of the other expressions in the room that day were written down. It was only her expression of worship that we're going to be talking about forever the excessive one, the lavish one. And I think it's time to be known as excessive, to go just a little bit too far. Many people think that the, the gold brought by the Magi was so much that that's, that's what actually financed uh, Joseph, Mary, and the family to be able to go to Egypt during that period written about in Scripture. I mean, it says that the Magi came bringing treasures. It says, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. My point is that the Magi's pursuit 
to worship this newborn king altered their normal priorities. They don't, the Magi's job wasn't just to roam thousands of miles every year and hand out gifts to people that a star was leading them to. This was a one-time occasion. This was a special thing. And their goal was to worship. It wasn't to receive anything. It was to give him everything. And apparently, the goal of worship to them involved emptying large portions of their treasures. And for us, it doesn't always mean money or finance, but in this case, it did. I felt really stirred this week that we're going to do something special tonight. We're going to move into that now. Um, I need everybody to close your eyes. I need every head bow, every eyes closed. I don't want anybody looking around. Take just a second. And if possible, I don't want people moving around right now. I need you to be very honest. Nobody's looking. There's no cameras on the audience. No one's looking around. Keep your eyes closed. How many people in this room won't be able to have Christmas this year because things are so economically tight? Just raise your hand. Yep, you can put it back down after I see it. Yep, okay. Keep your heads down. Nobody's looking. How many of you uh, who raised your hand have children at home? Keep your heads down. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, but keep your heads down. We're not quite done. When, when we give to the Lord on his behalf, it actually enters us into covenant with him. It puts us in a covenant with him to take him up on his name and his nature and his promises over us. He is Jehovah Jireh. When we take him up on that, it actually places our trust in him. And it's us saying, I know that you are who you say you are. I know that you are going to do what you say you're going to do. He's the one who says that he returns what we give. He's the one who says that our gifts to those people who are in need are returned to us. They're precious to him. They come back to us with interest. And he invites us into knowing him as provider, as sustainer. And I'm just going to tell you, there's only one way to enter into that covenant. We're going to take a very special offering tonight. Keep your heads down. I don't want anyone looking around. In the past, we've done this with widows and orphans and single parents. But today, we're going to take up an offering specifically to those people who are in desperate need to have a Christmas this year because of finances. 100% of this offering we're about to take is going to go straight to them. Uh, We're going to collect it in just a second. We'll take up the offering buckets, and we'll have um, some people in the back left of the room counting it up and dividing it based on how many people raise their hands, and we're going to get it to you guys. So keep your heads down. I want to give everybody one more chance. There's nobody looking around but me. Will you raise your hand if you can't have a, a decent Christmas this year because of finances? Put it up real high just for a minute. I need to see these. And it's, this is a now or never thing because uh, we can't have people going back there after we've divided things and have to re-divide things. Uh, we're only going to have those people go back to the room who've raised their hands, okay? So last, last call. Let me see real high. Nobody's looking but me. Good. Okay. Keep your hands raised. 
or sorry, you can put your hands down. This is, this is what I want to tell you. There is absolutely no shame in this. There's only provision. And what I want to say specifically to you who raised your hands, and I think there was a couple who didn't. I want to give you one more chance. It's just a second. Don't rob other people this beautiful opportunity to bless you. There are people here who actually have a stirring in their hearts to be able to invest into something like this. And this, it's not pride to raise your hand. It's actually the opposite. It's demonstrating trust in our Lord and Savior being our provider. Let others have this opportunity to look like Jesus to you in this moment. So last time, no one's looking around. I want to make sure I felt like the Lord said there was a couple others. Raise your hand if you feel like this is you. Even if you raise your hand already, I need to see those same hands. Okay. Okay. Um, you guys can look up. We're gonna, um, can we actually start passing some offering buckets around? Um, and as those are going around, I just wanna take one second and remind you that there is no distraction when you have complete surrender to him. It's beautifully costly to lay things down at his feet. And the cost of laying lesser things down for the greater things, it usually hurts, right? It usually has a sting. It goes against the flesh and it goes against those momentary desires. But the reward of his presence will always overshadow the cost of those lesser things. Always. It might be costly. It might be refining. But it's worth losing those distractions. And you said to me at the beginning of the service when I said, who here wants a greater measure of his glory? And everybody raised their hand. Well, this is an opportunity to sow into his glory to sow into those who actually need some finance right now. So what we're going to do now is um, we're going to go into a, a short time of worship just to close the evening. This will be the end of service. I'm not going to come back up and dismiss you guys later. There's no need for you to do anything other than to give him your affections, to turn your hearts to him. And maybe you don't have nickels and dimes, but you have a heart and he wants your heart. He's willing to take that. So if you need to leave, God bless you. Please don't forget your kids in Children's Church. If you were one of the people who raised your hands, uh, Rachel Johnson is in the back, right back there. At some point in the next few minutes, uh, I want you guys to go find Rachel and she'll just be there with you until we can count up the money. And then we're going to distribute it evenly to the people who raised their hands. So can everybody just stand with me? Thank you. Thank you that you're provider. Thank you, God, that you've demonstrated so many times over and over and over and over that you're worth the lavish love, the, the lavish offering that we can give you. Thank you for the opportunity to look like you tonight, Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to reach out, to be the provider, to be provisioned through us in this moment. And just like those magi traveled for two years to give you something so costly, Father, tonight would you take this worship, would you take this as our offering to you, as this beautiful sacrifice to the true lamb, the sacrificial lamb. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen. Oh, come let us
us adore Him. Oh, come let us adore Him. Oh, come let us adore Him. Christ the Lord, the worthy Lord, the worthy Lord, the worthy Lord. Oh, 
For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5, live at Kahalama. Aloha.